Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Prod Squad podcast. Nick Cook here, joined, as always, by Brendan Colleton. Brendan, how's it going? It's it's going well. You're coming through loud and clear today. (laughs) More importantly, Brendan, how do I sound? (laughs) You sound great, Nick. Uh, It it seems you also look like a stand-up comedian, which I know it's a podcast, you know, not a visual medium, but at the same time, I appreciate it. Yeah, I did. So... Anyone who listened to episode 11, I'm sure everyone who's listening to episode 12 did. We had some, uh, I had some audio issues. D- part of the long running bit that neither of us can have a good microphone at the same time. So I went out and bought an- another microphone. Um, but this one is like, yeah, like a stand up comedy mic that I'm just holding in one hand and feeling kind of silly as I say. Yeah, kind of like how like yours has a blue light on it and mine has a red light on it. So it's a little bit of like a Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker feel, uh, which I appreciate. Ooh, I like that. Good little good versus evil. Not that we're <laughs> categorizing, you know. But <laughs> um, so this week we're gonna talk about user stories. Uh, we kind of went wanted to go with a bit of a back to the basics type episode. You know, we started out with a lot of sort of product fun fundamental episodes, a little more on the you know uh, I don't know teaching side or um, you know kind of foundational elements. And we got a little exploratory, but uh, we're bringing it back to those basics. But before we do, we're going to kick it into everyone's favorite segment. I don't know if that's true or not. It's our only the retro. Uh, <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, it's just the retro and then the rest of the episode. <laughs> um, so for the retro, you know, before the episode, we're talking about our, our new mics and they both have equally bad misses on their LEDs. So... Brendan, we've talked about yours before, which has the ever disorienting red light when unmuted. When, when it's live. So as long as it's not on mute, there's a steady red icon. And when it is on mute, uh, that icon blinks. So exact opposite of what you'd expect to be the behavior. Per- beautiful. And now my mic has, I think, a less egregious one, which is a blue light when it's receiving power. And then a small switch that you can, you know, turn it on and off, um, mute it and unmute it, which has no effect on the light. Would have been nice maybe if, if the light went red. I don't know. But maybe maybe there's something with red that we're just out of the loop on when it comes I to think microphone. We're, I think we're both missing a big opportunity to jump into the microphone game because it appears extremely weak. Uh, but yeah, it. I would disagree that it's not equally egregious that your microphone can be off and have a blue power light. That remains <laughs> on. That is equally terrible. All right, fine, Brendan. Equally terrible mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so switching gears to some tech I've recently encountered, some hardware that I really liked. So I'm going through this condo rebuild and um, we had an incident where, you know, someone forgot to lock the door that was working there and, you know, nothing happened, nothing was lost, but it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I really want this door locked, you know? And so I decided to give myself some sanity. I was going to buy one of those little just like cameras and just put it in the place. And I was expecting, I'm, I am not in the camera game. I've never had a ring or any of those. And, um, so I just found some camera. It's like wise. It was like $36. I was like, Oh, whatever. I'll just like put this in. It'll probably be terrible. It's like kind of great. It was like a really easy setup process. The picture quality, I couldn't believe. 
and it was like $35. And now I, this just live streams my, the inside of my upstairs, which can see both, both uh, entrances to the condo to my phone has some recording some playback you can talk through it this is probably like the least exciting thing especially because it was called like wise cam v3 so i'm assuming it's been around for a while but i was actually blown away at I, just the quality for the kind of the price and it was like super easy to set up and yeah the only experience i have with those types of cameras is we got one when we got our dog to try and like you know kind of almost like a nanny cam for the dog when we left them home during the day mm. um, but i definitely should have looked for probably a more generic cam because the dog version was probably just like the worst possible version just in a dog plastic shape so <laughs> i i think you probably made the right move there this did get me thinking do i pull the the baby monitor off the registry and just buy i mean the baby monitor is like two hundred dollars how many i could buy <laughs> five wise cams and just yeah, put them everywhere <laughs> never you know i don't know um yeah well i'm, I'm glad you had a positive uh, technology experience because uh, i only got deeper into a, a hole with uh, my good friend redfin oh no not the red, yeah so not as red. some of our our listeners probably know real out on Redfin from a while back when I found out that their algorithm to tell me the, you know, the price of our condo was uh, basically, you know, changes week to week, not just what it says it's going to cost today, but what it said it would cost a year ago. So it's not really an accurate prediction. It's mm -hmm. just throwing out random, random lines effectively on a graph. Um, but so my wife and I are thinking, you know, we got a, our son now, he's going to be mobile soon. Our, uh, you know, two bedroom condo with a dog in him suddenly doesn't seem quite big enough. So we've been looking at, at houses and, uh, you know, still using Redfin, right. To find a place. They've got a pretty good website, good filters, good alerts. Um, but the whole concept of Redfin, right. The way they make their money is that when we find our place, Redfin should have somebody like at the ready to help us make an offer because we're using Redfin and not a realtor to look at all these places, right. Schedule all of our walkthroughs. Mm -hmm. So we find a place that we want to make an offer on. I go to contact my Redfin agent. You know, they're right there on my profile. It's the same person we used last time, you know, two, three years ago. No response. I get nothing. You know, we're in the Boston area, right? Offers mm -hmm. are due in 48 hours. So uh, yeah. like three hours, four hours, five hours go by. I don't have all that long, right, to get this done. And I'm like, what the heck? So I look her up on LinkedIn and she doesn't work at Redfin anymore. They just have the agent <laughs> that is assigned to my account, the only person who like I can reach, Ooh. right? Redfin gives me no other numbers. I call their general line and it like leave a voicemail or nothing. You got no options. Like the only person I can reach doesn't work at Redfin anymore. And there's no indication that she doesn't work there. So, you know, they actually lost my business. I was joking before about them losing my business. They still had it. <laughs> now they have actually lost it. So I just thought that was unreal that this type of firm is set up this way. Yeah, I feel like that whole the foundation of their business is like cost effective yeah. and speed, right? That's that's what it's built on, you know. Um and so so basically this person just there was just an artifact in the system. They never decommissioned this. They they, they have no user story that is uh as a <laughs> purchaser of a house, I want to know <laughs> yeah, right, the user story right here doesn't but... work at Redfin anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because I need a user to buy a so house. So I can. That's <laughs> a beautiful user story. And an, and an excellent segue to the other segment we have 
which is the main part of the show. I don't know if it counts as a segment, but let's keep um, going. <laughs> uh, so this week, as Brendan just alluded to, and I said in the beginning, we're talking about user stories. Um, definitely, I think like a building block of product management, or at least for me, was probably the first thing that I worked on that I was like, this is product management. <laughs> this is a tangible artifact I'm building. That's product management. So it'd probably be helpful if we started by defining what is a user story. Uh, Brendan, I'll let you take the the first swing at that if you want. How would you, if you had to give it a quick The definition. reason my notes don't have a definition is I, I liked yours so much. So feel free to feel Ooh. free to jump in here. Okay. Well, I did put a definition in the notes. <laughs> and it's the smallest unit of business value described from the perspective of a user. So I guess to quickly break that apart, the smallest unit of business value, meaning that if it was delivered without other uh, you know, user stories or pieces of work, it could kind of stand, stand on its own as independently valuable. That doesn't mean that you're always going to release. We'll kind of get into this later. You know, every user story individually. Um, obviously, multiple user stories can build up a feature, and then it's written from the perspective of the user. And I think that's really important. You know, it, we're not writing these as a developer. I want to write a backend to, <laughs> you know, sort the data that's coming back. Um, it's written from the perspective of the user. So now that we have the definition. Why are user stories useful? I have a few thoughts here, but Brendan, I'll try to kick it to you again. Unless you've liked <laughs> all my answers also for this category, in which I'll just no, solo. These ones were good too. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, I think the, the reason I like that definition so much and the thing that I have always found to be sort of the uh, maybe non-obvious value that user stories provide, right? There is some, I think, pretty obvious value in that they're stories. They're things that are easy to communicate and let the business know and your developers know what you're building, who you're building it for, and why you're building it, right? And so they're excellent, mm -hmm. I think, communication tools. Um, and that's a, a huge piece of, of what they bring. Um, you know, they're not developer speak. They're not pages and pages of PowerPoint. They're simple, concise, and they're, uh, you know, tell a short story. But the other thing that I think has, and maybe not the, the obvious um, point of value, at least when I started to write user stories, is that they, I think they really crystallized for me, like, what an MVP actually meant, because until you take you know a yeah. feature you're building and you break it down into every increment of value um, that it provides, uh, I think it's really too easy to overscope an MVP or to include things that are mm -hmm. are really not as important. Right? It's it's when you actually say, okay, out of the three weeks that we're going to work on this, one week would be dedicated to this piece that you're like, well you know, maybe that piece isn't, isn't what we need to build. And so the fact that it actually like makes you better at developing a product and an, an MVP to deliver and learn from, I think that's the piece to me that is the most important aspect. Yeah. I think we talked about it in a previous episode, but so at high Marley, we have product managers and product owners and it's, it's a sort of up to each team to determine um, sort of what the handoff of, of responsibilities are. And one of those kind of comes down to who's making the tickets, the user stories. And I remember at first I was like, oh, great. Like, <laughs> I guess I don't have to write user stories. Like I kind of almost thought of it as like a, a win in a way. And then just immediately as I was going about my day to day, I had to write them because like my mind just sort of 
like you said, it, it, it really helps crystallize things, right? You, you start with this feature and then it's just so easy when you have this big feature and you're like, this is definitely the MVP. It's like, all right, just break it down into the user stories real quick then. And, and it, it's incredible how much kind of extra you usually find in there that I swear you could stare at the, the Confluence document forever and be like, nope, this is exactly the minimum thing that I need uh, if it's not broken apart. So I've totally gone back to my, my user story ways and I, I don't think I'll be changing anytime soon. Yeah, and I, I think it's almost also one of the things that has been a little bit more challenging in my role that we write front-end and back-end user stories because like, oftentimes you're thinking and you're writing a, a back-end user story and you're like, well, you know, I should, do I make this like as uh, complete of a backend functionality as possible, right? Return every field and make every field editable and, you know, have all these different types of actions so that we have flexibility on the front end. Or do I, you know, try to really minimally do what's required and, and then I have to circle back to it. And I, I, and we might have to circle back to, you know, the backend to update it. And I tend to, I think, overwrite the backend tickets. So it's one of the things that I, uh, I think is, sort of lost and why you don't write front end and back end user stories in most agile apps, uh, <laughs> because, uh, you know, it makes it more difficult, I think, to really limit that story down to what just what's necessary. Yeah, definitely. Another thing that I wanted to uh, talk about that you brought up was creating something that's can be understood by a bunch of different people at the organization, different stakeholders. Um, and I think this is something that sometimes doesn't get recognized enough, which is, you know, you need to be able to, I think one of the big jobs as a product manager to say is communicating to everyone what you're working on and why, right? Like that is just fundamental to the role. And, you know, it's, of course, you're going to have that feature initiative level thing that you might hold up and say, hey, we're working on this project or this feature and it'll probably take us a, a month to build or something yep. maybe now with within that though you know that's sort of like a black box to some people and they're not going to want to they're not going to care about like oh well we wrote a hundred lines of code today so we're this much closer but a user story is like this sort of the smallest trackable unit that someone from the business could probably understand like hey we um you know we're we're building this new subgroups feature at work right now around group hierarchy. And we're starting with the creation of the hierarchy. And then we're going to move to visualizing it better and, and searching, yeah. you know, and, and it, we're sort of breaking it down that way. And that is at least trackable to bring back in a sprint, sprint review or something like that to say, Hey, after these two weeks, we did these pieces and, and here's why they're valuable. Yeah. I would even take that a level further. Like I think some of the most impressive product management shops I've seen are, are ones that, make their entire like sprint, um, you know, uh, boards, the, the Kanban boards to watch tickets move across a sprint. Um, you know, they, they actually make them public. They make them something that either the mm. customers can sometimes even see, but at, at minimum, the people inside the business can see, and that wouldn't be possible if you aren't writing, you know, user stories that can be understood and appreciated you know, by the, the rest of the organization. Um, I think it, it's really a, an excellent translation tool between like what your developers are building and what's actually going into the code and, you know, what's being prioritized by the organization. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good way to look at it. It, it kind of gets both sides. It sort of pulls the technology layer up 
to the business to give them something to understand. And, but it also pulls the business, it, it connects the business need down to something tangible to build. And, and that's sort of the flip side of it where it helps communicate the why to developers, QA, um, you know, frequently designers that maybe come in a bit earlier in the process. So they may be more aware of the why. Um, but it's just nice to have this artifact that's like, okay, why am I, why am I writing yeah. the back end? And then that's sort of, the, I've heard, um, are you, have you ever heard of the term pigeon language? Like, I think it's P I D G I N. Are you Googling? No, it right I have now? not heard the term pigeon language. Okay. I didn't either. And, um, one of the guys at work taught me about it, but it's basically, uh, I'm probably going to do a bad job, but it's like a language you develop with someone who you don't maybe naturally or natively communicate with. And it's, and it's sort of, um, a common ground with, with which you can communicate yep. on. And that's, uh, he referred to the user stories as that with developers. Okay. So like product isn't going to say, here's the code and the, you know, but they know the why and the developers know the code and the, the user story is the, the pigeon link, yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's the, the meeting point of the two, which I thought was really an interesting way. And I just never heard of the word. I like that. I am very (laughs) interested in why it's called pigeon language of all things. But uh, if we can move on. Not spelt like the bird. Okay. But anyways, um, yes. Uh, And then the final piece uh, of the why here, and and we covered this uh, kind of in the definition, smallest unit of business value allows you to release iteratively. So, um, you know, sometimes you're not, you're going to want to sort of silently release a feature because you do need all the user stories done. But a lot of times I, as you know, I know at logic manager, we were big fans of shipping it. (laughs) You know, I think there was a lot of things that, um, and I was a fan of that as well, where, um, you know, maybe we had an MVP that was five user stories, three were done. We had a release, those three go out and they were live in the app and you could use it with the understanding that it wasn't, maybe complete, but it was, it was usable and we weren't like deploying a bunch of backend code that didn't do anything or have a bunch of buttons in the app that had to be hidden or, or something like that. Cause each, each piece of work was, you know, independently valuable and, and yeah. Usable. And I actually think this is, this is a really good indicator of whether you're writing like traditional agile user stories or something a little bit different. Like if you are uh, developing for an application and you're finding that like you always can't release because you have, you know, some, some blocker tickets uh, involved uh, or, you know, things along those lines, mm-hmm. uh, that's a, if that happens too much, that's generally a sign that you're not actually writing user stories, right? You're writing, you know, dev tickets or something, something slightly different because uh, a story that actually delivers incrementally value for the customer all on its own um, should be deliverable, you know, without a bunch of accompanying work, right? It might not be the ideal version of your release, right? You always want to, you know, try to aim for some degree of completeness, but uh, a real true user story can be completed sort of on its own and provide value to the customer without, uh, any other story being completed. Absolutely. All right. So now that we've successfully convinced everyone, I'm sure why (laughs) they are important. So now that they know why they're listening to this episode, um, how do you write a good user story? This is something I feel like I have not perfected. I've far from perfected, but has gradually gotten better and better over time. And I look back at some of my original user stories that I'm like, these are sorry excuses. <laughs> um, but generally I think they follow the same structure, which is there is sort of this story maybe at the top of the ticket, which takes on the form of like, as a persona, I would like some deliverable so I can accomplish something. And then there's usually 
uh, acceptance criteria, conditions of satisfaction that are talking about sort of what you're building. Um, so maybe if we start at the top there, that, that, uh, that one sentence story that you usually get, what are some common tips for, for writing that or pitfalls that people run into when they're writing that, you know, as a user story? At the yeah. Top? The one that always used to drive me nuts as a, uh, you know, a person that was managing product managers for a while is when you looked at a story and it started as a user, um, that's probably like yep. the number one uh, most annoying thing to see as a PM because a user is not a persona and it uh, and mm-hmm. it does not tell a story whatsoever because um, you know no one's really building an app for a user right that user is a person they have a job they have an age they have things they like and dislike they probably have you know a particular profile that you're you're familiar with um, you can do just so much more to articulate and describe that than calling them a user. Could not agree more. Yeah. I feel like if, if you have to fall back to as a user, then you don't, you don't understand who you're building this for enough, right? You should be able to have a very clear. Now there may be more than one persona that'll benefit. Sure. But I think, you know, you should always go with the, the one that you're really building for in mind and use that persona in, in place of. Yeah. User. If you really have to document too, and I've had this happen before too, or I've actually written it and I put in a, an individual persona and I've had someone say like, Oh, but like, isn't it also going to do this for this person? And I was like, yeah, it, it absolutely will. You know, but this is the sort of primary piece of value that I thought. And they, you know, had wanted me to generalize it. Uh, and, uh, again, I, I, just wrote another story basically and put it side by side so that there ended up being, you know, two stories, both accomplishing the same ticket because yeah. that's more valuable than making it generic. Totally. Like you, you have to know who you're building something for and it can be more than one person, but uh, making it generic just makes it less of a story, less understandable to, you know, everyone else that that's looking at your app. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And I've, I've actually done the, the same exact thing. Um, the other pitfall I see in this this one sentence, <laughs> so there can't be too many. It's a very short piece of work, but uh, making the sort of I would like and the so I can statement mirror yeah. each other. So not really defining why they want the thing. You know, um, I have I have groups on the brain as I do a lot of user management and it'd be, you know, we're introducing some search functionality. It'd be very easy to say, um, you know, as a supervisor, I'd like to search the groups so, by username so that I can find uh, the groups the user is in. And all you really did is rephrase the feature that right. you're building, right? You didn't really say like, well, why am I searching? Um, you know, uh, so that when a person transitions within our organization, I can easily find the teams they're on and then move them to the appropriate teams, right? That would be a, a better way to phrase that, that so I can. And if you're struggling to do that, I, like I think this sentence is such a good sanity check because if you're struggling with either of those components, identifying the persona or knowing why you're specifically building the thing, it usually means you should like, hey, take a step back and you know make sure we're we know what we're building here and that that it is valuable. Yeah, and this is also something too where your developers can start to step in if you write a good user story, whereas they really there's nothing for them to do but develop mm. what you said if you write a bad one. In the first version yes. of the example, you know, I need to develop search so that I can find users or whatever. Your your developer has no understanding, right, of the context of why it's being built, right? The feature mm-hmm. exists so that it can execute what that feature does. Um, and there's no additional context or, or reason why he's 
you know, going to spend two or three days building this thing. Um, but in the second version, when you added that context and you gave the developer like the understanding of, you know, the person and the job and the role and, and why they might want to do this, he might have even better ideas or other things that he could do to more easily accomplish that goal that you didn't think of or that weren't raised previously, you know, and hopefully this isn't coming out like last second in planning, but oftentimes when the developer sees, you know, what you're actually trying to accomplish as a product, they can bring their own ideas to the table, right? They can engage in an intelligent conversation about that. Whereas if you're writing those kind of basic stories where the uh, why is just to do whatever the feature does, you're, you're ultimately not allowing the developer to have those types of conversations with you. Yeah, I, I, there are numerous user stories that I've had developers feel like, hey, great idea, but <laughs> how about, <laughs> now that I understand why, how about this much better idea? And I'm like, fantastic. <laughs> That's why we do grooving. Um, all right, so after the, the stories in there, you know, there's usually the acceptance criteria, some people call them conditions of satisfaction. And I think that 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 story that that opening sentence is pretty formulaic. I, I think most people do it very consistently Definitely. the same way. the The body of the ticket, I think, has a lot more variability. And I know even how I've written them over the years has has changed a lot. So, Brendan, when you are writing acceptance criteria, conditions of satisfaction, what's kind of the format or the structure you use? Maybe just talk through that and and uh, we'll jump yeah, in there. I, so first off, I would say like, I remember back when I started writing user stories, I actually looked for whether there are any conditions or formulas or things like that that I could follow in order to write these. And um, when you look online, one that you come across often that um, I don't use and, and think is probably overly complicated is the given when then format. So, you know, if you're trying to be mm. super formulaic, that's one to look at and, and see maybe if it works for your team. The idea is given is sort of your prerequisites, like given the user is in a certain state, um, not the user, right? Actual persona, but given whoever that persona is in a certain <laughs> state, <yourself. laughs> uh, they take a certain action. That's the when. So given a prerequisite, when they do this, uh, then is sort of the action, right? What you're changing, like then, um, you know, a meeting is scheduled or, uh, you know, an, mm -hmm. an alert is sent, something along those lines, you know, what you actually want to happen when that action's taken. Um, I find it's a little too verbose and a little too complicated. Like a lot of times the prerequisites can be inferred based on what you're working on. And, you know, if you just are, are really articulating absolutely everything in a story, they can get really, really long, especially if you take this method. Um, so what I think yeah. I fall back on when I'm writing a user story is really just the latter two almost. It's the condition and then it's what happens when that condition is met. And so it's a lot of if-then statements or like and or Boolean mm. style statements. And I try to be pretty technical with mm -hmm. it, um, but that's generally how my stories are written. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I feel similarly. I, I couldn't adhere to that structure necessarily. Um, my brain is just also wired in list format. Yeah. <laughs> I live my life in list format. So, you know, I just going one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> just how, how my thoughts come, go onto pages naturally. So having that, like given when then just didn't really, I don't know, didn't, didn't flow that way. Um, so I'll typically just kind of, um, you know, create a list of, and this is where it gets tricky because I, you, I don't think you want it to be requirements, right? You, you want there to be, I think one of the challenges you constantly see is how prescriptive should you be with your 
acceptance yeah, criteria definitely. for your conditions of satisfaction. Um, and I think I've had, I've gone, I've swung the pendulum both, both ways where, you know, I probably started off extremely broad and then I remember getting extremely narrow and, you know, say, being like, we're going to sort alphabetically case insensitive A to Z, right? You're just like, this probably could have just said sort alphabetically. And like, as a group, we would have gotten to a common understanding. Yeah. Um, I think that's something I still struggle with is, you know, how much to, to put in there. And I think also how much do you rely on designs, which are, we haven't really touched on them, but you know, of course, if a user story has UI implications, you'll, you'll often have designs associated with it, which will, uh, a lot of times the visual medium is much easier to describe something than writing sentences about it. So yeah, I don't know. How, how do you feel about that whole, like, you know, broad versus narrow, um, approach to writing acceptance criteria. Yeah, I do agree that like the the pendulum on it is pretty wide ranging and part of that also depends on what we're building. You know, if it's it, and and you know, a lot of times if we're writing a user story as a placeholder or something that we need to talk about, um, it'll often start really broad, right? Like an example might be, you know, when we started to introduce um, you know, functionality into our app that was going to do, you know, uh, you know, processing of, of contracts and spitting out the terms from them, right? Like we didn't know a lot mm. about how that was going to be built and how it could have been testable and what the ramifications of it were. Um, and so, you know, in those instances, you can leave a lot of leeway, right? You have some general requirements that you might document as acceptance criteria, but you leave a lot of leeway to the developers. That being said, like in, in, in a lot of times people will emphasize that that's best practice, right? Because you want your developer to be able to negotiate with you. Um, in practice, I think what's often happened, at least with the stories I've written, is they've had so many eyes on them by the time they get into the sprint that your acceptance criteria end up being pretty detailed, right? Like QA's got their eyes on it. Mm. QA wants to know whether alphabetical includes like alphanumeric or how you're going to treat symbols. Like they want to get that detail. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, so many people get you know their their comments in there that it ends up being a probably a more detailed user story than some of the like best practice think piece articles out there will tell you to be. Um, but that's sort of what worked for me and the teams I've been on. So, you know, it's kind of what works for you there. Yeah. Actually, I, I like what you said there of starting broader and then narrowing in. Um, yeah. I, I like let it, once you go through all those grooming meetings and planning, it should naturally, it probably will naturally get towards um, more specific acceptance criteria and ultimately the goal is to just get a common understanding right. between yourself qa developers and as long as that is achieved then you're doing a good job um you know uh and and also i, I think I've made, i may have made this joke on a previous episode but uh saying per spec is one of my my favorite cop-outs on the ui side when i'm when i realize i'm trying to write sentences to describe <laughs> a button or a error handling it's a lot of times i've just found it easier to if you make sure you know you work with design to make sure the spec is really kind of compartmentalized to just that user story so it's not confusing to the development team you know what's in scope what's not that can just be a super helpful yeah tool. good designs do a, a wonderful job of getting everybody on the same page i think even you know little mini prototypes do even better um the one thing I'll say, I've even actually been asked it in interviews by developers is they'll say, you know, what's the, uh, what is the, um, oh, I'm blanking on the word here, but you know, what is the 
system of record, if you will, right? Is it the user story that I trust or is it the design that mm. I trust? And if there are differences, yes. which one do I go with? Um, and, you know, I think that's something that you do have to start to wrestle with when it's all not in the same place. You know, some people say like, oh, if a comment is written, maybe the comment overwrites the user story or, oh, you know, you always go with the design. I do oh, think yeah. as an organization, you kind of have to have that shared understanding. What is the source of source truth? of truth? Thank you. Yes. The, oh, is it that random Slack comment someone wrote at 6 p.m. Right. last night being like, actually, I think the, the button should look like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. Uh, defining that is super important. Um, and then I one thing we've kind of uh, haven't talked about is we said up top that it's the smallest unit of business value. But how small or how big? You know, how small is too small? How big is too big? I know there's one... It, there's one specific uh, debate I remember, Brendan. I don't know if you remember this exact feature, so we'll see. Um, but I guess let, let's talk about like the size of a user story um, because I think you can get too granular. I, I remember I'll give a, an embarrassing example for myself. We were building a table once and I wrote a user story, you may remember this, for every, um, every row in the, in the table. Uh, or excuse me, every column, because in my mind, it was iteratively valuable. Like one column is valuable, two columns is more <laughs> valuable, three columns is more, even though we were having like five total columns. And I remember we got to grooming and everyone was like, what is this? Just This is one story with like five acceptance criteria. Um, so that was sort of, you know, swinging the pendulum way too far in the small side. Um, but I do think it's important, you know, one, um, uh, sort of good sizing is, is that it should be completable in a sprint, whatever your sprint cycle is. That's typically two weeks. Um, you know, I, I, when we used to talk about user stories that were, we would point them, we'd say, Oh, there are 13 points. You know, that was pushing the limit of what someone could complete in a sprint. And so those usually had to be, had to be broken down. So I don't know, Brendan, what's the sweet spot on, on story size? Yeah, I, I do remember the debate that we had, right? I think it was driven by developers, like not wanting to take on, I think it was a 13 point ticket. Maybe it was an eight point ticket, but they wanted no more big tickets <laughs> and you wanted to break the story down. Uh, and I think I had a problem with that because I didn't think that first piece provided value and, uh, or like the, the separate tickets provided value. And I forget exactly what it was that we were debating, but I think the my argument was, and I think this drives a lot of my thinking, is that like the value should be like it can't be eye roll value, right? Like you can talk about mm. value in a lot of ways, right? Like, is it value if the you know a modal pops up and the user can see it but they can't take action on it? Well, you know at least they understand what was supposed to happen, even if it wasn't. So like, is that some level of value? And you can't have that. You have to actually be providing them some like concrete value that if a you like if a customer came up to you and they said hey like what does this do you know what am i going to get out of this you wouldn't feel ashamed to explain to them what it was doing <laughs> um and you know they wouldn't roll your eyes at you brendan i okay i, I remember the exact feature and and um it was the importing and exporting of profiles uh and we won't get into the weeds of like the background of it but it's essentially you could export some structure and then import it in a separate part of the app to sort of automatically build that structure out. Um, they're called profiles or forms essentially. Uh, and the, the, the discussion was to 
to, to was it valuable to have exporting of the form structure as one story and importing of the form structure as a right. second story? Okay. Because though that you know, I oh, I remember this vividly, um, and you, because you could make like the argument, oh well, you can export it and then like store it for when we have the import feature. That's what because every that's team what said, everybody hey, we, wanted. We can JSON export. Of, <laughs> of this form. But, but it was because the engineering teams, <laughs> uh, the engineering teams said, hey, we can't build the, the they both aren't going to be able to be completed in the in the sprint. Um, was basically what it came down to. If we and if we combined it as one story, it would be you know at least thirteen points, and it wouldn't be completed in the sprint. So I do think it's an interesting. I fell on the side of splitting it up because I and it's kind of like I guess what do you think the limiting and, factor is? Should it be the the size or should it be the? And I will say I think we split it up here because, like you said, it didn't fit into a sprint. And obviously, those are the types of things that happen where. You know, yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes just the nature of, of development, you're going to have to split things up in ways that are unfortunate and don't provide the exact degree of value. Um, but I I do recall now. I'm very impressed that you remember all that. <laughs> remember it vividly. It's a passionate. <laughs> it was clearly a more passionate argument from my side than your <laughs> side. <laughs> uh, um, all right, Brennan. What else do you have on user stories uh, or, or are we wrapping? I think the here? last thing I'll throw in there is it was, a, it was a question that came up in interviews. I was asked all the time and I'll just leave people with this. And they always used to say, you know, what makes a good user story? Um, and that was the interview question. And you and I just spent like 45 minutes talking about this. So like, <laughs> it, it was a pretty challenging interview question um, to like really be succinct about. But the uh, analogy yeah. that I always went back to that I liked and that everyone who listens is free to steal is I would say a good mm. user story is like a hamburger in that you you take a bite and you know you didn't just get the bun you didn't just get the lettuce you didn't just get you know tomato you got a single bite of a hamburger right and like that was the value and what you were trying to deliver you know and the analogy is like all those layers that's the front end the back end you know the different elements of the design a user story needs to encompass all of that into the you know the single piece of value the bite that you can give. And uh, a lot of people really liked that. That was a, a good analogy. I, I mean, you got hired. So no, <laughs> I, I, I really like that analogy. Actually, I will say I was looking at our notes and I wasn't going to call it out, but I was like, why does the hamburger <laughs> stories written down? Like I could not figure out what it was, but it's an excellent analogy. Um, and I will say, yeah, to your point about this, when I, when we pitched this episode, I was like, all right, we'll talk about user stories and then what else are we going to talk about? And here we are, like you said, 40 minutes in just on user stories. Um, and I'm sure we could go even longer, but uh, but we won't. Uh, all right. Well, with that, hopefully an episode free of audio issues. Uh, regardless, though, we'd appreciate <laughs> even if there were audio issues, if you gave us a five-star review, <laughs> uh, <laughs> gave us those ratings on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you find your podcasts, we do have an email, prodsquadcast at gmail.com. Would love if people emailed in thoughts, questions. Uh, you can also hit us up on LinkedIn. Brendan, I was wondering if we should eventually plug. I reserved all the namespaces for this podcast on like socials, but I don't log into like the Prod Squad Twitter or anything. What's our what's our social presence? I think, we, I think you and I got to <laughs> define a strategy before we go live with that one. <laughs> okay. Don't tweet at us yet. <laughs> 
Uh, but seriously, we've gotten awesome. a lot of All awesome right. ideas for uh, for episodes, and so uh, you know, keep them coming because uh, then we know at least we're we're making episodes for one person. Yeah. We want to talk about something that at least one person wants to hear. That's our that's our podcast motto. Uh, all right. Until next time, everyone. Squat Take out. Care.